a fame of, of you know, faithful men and women in the, old, in the Old Covenant. Enoch was one of the ancient humans called Antidevolians, or Antidiluvians, excuse me, who lived before the flood. And what's interesting here is that Enoch, according to Genesis chapter 5 and also according to Jude, was only seventh in line from Adam. So when you go back to Genesis chapter 5 and if you, if you crunch the numbers, right, you do some math, add them all up, you actually realize that Adam would have still been alive during Enoch's early days. And, and so it's likely that Enoch sat at Adam's feet and listened to his stories of creation and walking with God in the Garden of Eden. Can you, can you imagine the things that Enoch knew that we don't? The terrible downward history of the world since the fall in these centuries of just decline and, and wickedness that led to Noah's flood. Well, like the, the people of his day, Enoch lived a whole lot longer than we do. We, we learn in Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch lived 365 years. So let's just stop for a moment and think, what would it be like to live for 365 years? How, how many of you in this room, just raise your hand, remember life before the internet? Okay. All right, half of us, maybe more. How many of you, and be, okay, we'll get to honesty in a minute. How many of you watched Neil Armstrong in real time step on the moon? Raise your hand. Now look around, keep your hand up for a minute, all right? We're starting to date ourselves. That was a while ago, right? When, when he took that first step on to the moon dust. How, is there anybody here who would admit it, willing to admit it, who lived before the advent of color TV. Raise your hand. Okay, I'm getting some looks actually. Okay, so you remember life before color TV. Kids, can you imagine that? We're not talking about 4K. We're talking about black and white TV, right? On a little round thing, right? Some of you say, yeah, I remember that. I love Lucy right? And other such stuff. Leave it to Beaver, I think, was before color TV. Gilligan's Island wasn't. I remember Gilligan's Island as a kid, but we had color. All right, well, imagine living 365 years. If, if you were 365 years old today, right now, imagine the kinds of societal and technological and spiritual changes that you would have witnessed with your, with your life. Now, if Enoch were sitting with us here today in his last year of life, okay, he, he could tell us about his life experiences during World War II. And you know what? What a loss we have to no longer have that generation with us. As a kid, I had my grandfather and loved hearing his stories of World War II. That was a great generation. Enoch could have told us about his experiences in World War II, as well as World War I, as well as in the American Civil War, as well as in the American War for Independence, which actually, by the way, was less than 250 years ago, all right? In fact, Enoch could have recounted to us stories of over a century of 
colonial life in America before the United States existed because he would have been born only 37 years after the Pilgrim Fathers arrived at Plymouth Rock. Now that's Enoch. There, there's Methuselah who could have talked to us about the Middle Ages, right? And the Spanish Inquisition and all of that. But imagine living 365 years. But perhaps the most interesting fact about Enoch's life is the fact that he did not experience death because the Lord took him. And you know, it's hard. If, if you stop and think about that, Enoch's, for, better, for lack of a better word, translation from life as a human being on earth to life in the realm or the dimension of heaven, it's really hard to wrap our minds around that, not dying. And if you really stop and think about it, and that's because our, our entire human existence, death is such a part of it, right? I mean, we're used to seasons in which leaves die and animal death around us, and we just expect that we shall die one day. But what a, what a blessing. You know, the truth is, people say, well, that death is just natural. It's part of living. But the truth is, death is not natural. We are wired to live. For the Christian, the nanosecond after death is great victory. Because God gives us the gift of eternal life, but we still have to cross the Rubicon, which is part of the curse that we live in. Right? Everything that, the way God has designed us, every part of our being wants to resist death because we want to live and we're supposed to want to live. Life is a gift. And we're going to come back to that thought at the end of the message. But Enoch didn't die. But you know what? Enoch wasn't the only one in the Bible who was translated to heaven without dying. There were actually two other people. Can you think of who they were? Elijah comes to mind, right? In, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we read that, that, and we actually read how God did it. We don't know with Enoch. It's a mystery to us. But we read that, you know, remember Elisha was with Elijah, and suddenly there was like, a not just one, but there were like horses and chariots of fire that surrounded him in like a whirlwind, and it separated Elisha from Elijah, and God took Elijah up into heaven, translated him from one dimension to another, but by actually taking him into the air in what Elisha described visually as chariots of fire. So what was the other? What was the other one? Who else went to heaven without dying? Jesus, right? He ascended. Now, Jesus did die. That's cornerstone of the Christian faith, right? He died on a cross, which is like the opposite of everything we're talking about. As crazy it is to think about a human not dying, it's crazier to think of God dying. Try to wrap your mind around that one. Think about that for a while. But God in the flesh died on a cross for us, for our sake. Right? For our sake, he, who, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So praise God for the gospel that Jesus was willing to die, and then he rose from the dead, but he was given a real body. We, we need to remember that. He wasn't a phantom when he came back. He was a real body. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that our resurrected bodies are going to be real human bodies patterned after Jesus' body that could do some pretty awesome stuff. 
okay? But he ate food. So he had a digestive system. And yet he could walk through walls. But the way he went back to heaven to his father where Jesus today lives as a human being, still, the God-man still in heaven, okay, was by raising up into the air and translating, he was taken to heaven. So when he ascended, he actually passed from this realm into the heavenly realm without, without death. Well, God did this for Enoch. And our text tells us that Enoch was taken up by God, however it looked, would have been cool to have been there, because of his faith. Let's look at our text one more time. Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. And, and this morning for our sermon text, it's actually not going to be all about not dying. It's actually going to be about living by faith. And, and, and so I'm going to depart from the normal three points, and we've got four points this morning, right? Um, shock of shocks. Um, you know, did I go Presbyterian or something or what? You know, Baptist preachers like three points, but we've got four that I see here. Lessons from these two verses on how we can learn from Enoch's faith, okay? So as we read, um, I don't know if we've got them highlighted. We do. There you go. Except I only see three there. But anyway, there's four. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I I see four lessons, and the first that we're going to talk about uh, is really the the title of our sermon, the, the main point, and that is walking with God. Enoch walked with God. Now, wait a minute. Where do we see that in our text, that Enoch walked with God? Well, actually, what we see here in our text this morning is that Enoch was taken up, which then begs the question, well, why did God take Enoch directly to heaven? And if we look in the Old Testament story, we can actually see the the reason is is made clear to us. So let's look back to Genesis chapter 5. Feel free to turn there. Uh, if, you, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see an insert that has uh, a sermon guide in there. You'll see the, the texts that I refer to that are outside of Hebrews 11 are all listed out there for you as well. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, and again, four verses in the entire Old Testament about Enoch, okay? And as I count the words in my English translation, I see 46 words, and yet here's a story for us to learn from recounted by mystery man uh, who wrote Hebrews. So Genesis chapter 5, 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So here we see repeated twice that Enoch walked with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean? I think that's important. What does it mean for us to walk with God? What can we learn from Enoch's life as we desire to walk with God? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it cannot mean to walk with God. It cannot mean 
to walk continuously in iniquity. Over, over years of ministry as pastor, as a missionary uh, in numerous places, I've had conversations with people in different cultures that went like this. Oh, me and God, we're good. We're tight. He wants me to be happy. And he understands why I live with my boyfriend. Or, God's always been looking out for me. He's my main man. He knows none of us are perfect, right? I mean, come on, we dudes can't help it. We have to sleep around. I've, I've had people tell me that, right? When I've mentioned my faith in Jesus Christ, they'll start talking about his virtues. And God, oh yeah, man, we're tight. But the walk was one of iniquity, and the assumption is, oh, God doesn't mind. He understands. He just wants us to be happy. True story. I met a South African lady who told me, yeah, I love Jesus. When I mentioned Jesus, she mentioned, I love Jesus. He has a lot of positive energy. I'm a witch, by the way. I was actually having lunch with a, another brother at her house. She started telling me about all her witchcraft. And I started praying that God would confound that. And actually, she got frustrated. I didn't pray that out loud. I was praying that quietly, and she got kind of confused and muddled. And, 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 uh, but let me tell you, she wasn't walking with God. Walking with God implies submission and obedience. Remember last week we mentioned that there's a connection between a relationship with God and obedience to God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. When you, when you look through the scriptures at the word walk, as it's used idiomatically, we find texts like Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 through 2, when, when the Lord came to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Psalm 1.1 opens with, with, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then it describes that, that whole spiritual erosion process, right, of what happens when we do. In other words, blessed is the man who walks righteously. And, and we get that as we read through Psalm 1, who, who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his, in his law meditates day and night. In Revelation 3, 4, we read this interesting verse, where Jesus is writing to the church at Sardis, and he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So it doesn't mean to walk in iniquity, in continuous iniquity, right? Walking with God. You, 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 can't, you can't serve God and Belial or, or Mammon or, or you know, uh, uh, you, you can't, he doesn't want people who are, who are double-minded. Now, secondly, walking with God means living and, and going and walking counterculturally. Means walking against the flow. So you can't walk with God and just walk with the flow. Where did I get that from our text? Well, actually, I get this from Jude. As, as, as Jude actually recounts words of Enoch. It's very interesting. Last week we mentioned that the Bible doesn't actually have any words of Adam. I mean, I'm sorry, not Adam, but, but um, uh, um, Abel. And yet, Mystery Man talks about Abel speaking from the grave of faith by his example, right? But, but actually, we do have actual words that Jude recounts 
from Enoch as Enoch stood against wickedness in his society. So Jude chapter, or Jude verse 14 and 15, there's only one chapter in Jude, says this, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we see Enoch had a heart for God's glory and righteousness. And he was willing to go against the flow. Society had become rampantly evil. And we know that just a few generations later, the Lord destroyed humanity, saved Noah and his sons in the flood because of the absolute violent wickedness of mankind on the face of the earth. Well, society has certainly turned against God in our day. And I would just say this, that the Christian should not blend in too well to society. We should be distinct. Jesus called it the salt of the earth. I like the way Morgan put it this way, put it, put it this week. He and I were having our weekly talk about this text, the sermon text, and I asked him what he thought it meant to walk with God. So Morgan's words were this, it's a life in step with God. And a life in step with God is radically countercultural, as we see from Jude's reference to Enoch's preaching against the dark society around him. It means fighting for holiness, being obedient to the Lord, going against the current, standing for truth. So, first of all, walking with the Lord does not mean walking in iniquity. It also doesn't mean just blending in too well to the culture. It means being willing to stand out and, and go countercultural. But third, and, and I think most important, walking with God is, is more than just walking before God in the due obedience of a subordinate creature, which is kind of the Islamic view. Now, certainly we, we recognize we are subordinate creatures to God, and we are to walk in holiness, but there's more to it. Walking with God here implies a personal relationship with God. Kent Hughes wrote, walking with another person suggests a mutual agreement of soul, a friendship even. And, and what a privilege we have to have a personal relationship with the Almighty, the, the God of the universe. Enoch had an intimate relationship with God. He knew God. God revealed himself to Enoch, I think, in ways that are mysterious even to us. You know, it wasn't much further back in which Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Wow. Well, Enoch talked with God. He listened to God. He, he walked with God. Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And the idea here is that Enoch's relationship with the Lord God was so close relationally that with Enoch, God decided to not let him experience death so that he could so that he did what only he could do, that is he miraculously took or translated Enoch directly into his full presence in heaven without his having to experience the sting of death. Warren Wiersbe wrote, Enoch had been walking with God for so many years 
that his transfer to heaven was not even an interruption. Enoch had been practicing Colossians chapter 3 centuries before Paul wrote the words, keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are of the earth. Now here's the point. You and I may not go up to heaven like Enoch did, but we can walk with God too. You can walk with God. You can do this too. You can have a relationship that is intimate with the Lord. So the question is that I hope you'll think about today is, is do you? Do I have a relationship with God? And what does that relationship really look like day to day, week to week? Another way of framing the question might be, do we really prioritize God in our lives? Do you? When you're in trouble, do you talk to God and ask for help? When you're alone, do you find yourself communing with God? You know, we are relational creatures, and we want to share beautiful experiences with people. So do you share them with God? You know, when you're, when you're out there on the beach one night, and you see a magnificent sunset that God has painted, you're up in the mountains to, just beholding the beauty of His creation, do you talk to God and share that experience with Him, and, and tell Him how beautiful this thing that He's made is, His creation? And do you just kind of Share that, and, and even worship. That's part of a relationship with God. God. Enoch walked with God by faith, and, and our text tells us that Enoch pleased God. Back into our, our actual text of Hebrews, it actually says that he pleased God. Well, that's our second point of the sermon, pleasing God. Do, do you want to please God with your life? How did, how did Enoch please God? God, and we, we, we have the answer here in two words, by faith. And verse 6 elaborates on that. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God. So again, you get this idea of relationship, drawing near, drawing close. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's look at the three main elements of this verse, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to, to please God. Amola wrote, these words teach us two important theological truths. First, without faith, it's impossible to be commended. While works of eternal righteousness and general morality may commend us before men, these things are not sufficient to commend us before God. Humanitarianism, religiosity, Morality and following the most scrupulous personal ethical codes cannot bring us God's approval on the day of judgment. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There is no divine commendation for anyone who walks uprightly by the world standards without placing faith in Jesus Christ. Second, with faith it is impossible to be condemned. And I hope that sinks in. Without faith, it's impossible to be condemned. Maybe there's a sinner here like me who really needs to be reminded of that truth this morning. With faith, it's impossible to be condemned. This, of course, is the glory of the gospel. The righteousness of Christ is 
credited to us such that even our worst sins and most atrocious deeds cannot separate us from the love of God. By faith in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and resurrection, we can have confidence that we cannot be condemned. And that's the glorious truth of Romans 8, 38 and 39. Right? I mean, we're our own worst enemy, but even we can't separate us if we're in Christ, if our faith is in Him from the love of God. As Paul writes, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, the, the second element of verse 6 is believing in God. So there's pleasing God, there's walking with God, there's pleasing with God, and point number three, there's, there's believing in God. And that's our third sermon point this morning. We read that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So let me just ask you a question, and if the answer is I do, raise your hand, all right? How many of you believe in God? Okay, so that's most or all of us. Now I'll tell you, I don't, I don't assume that everyone who comes and worships with us does. I, I assume that the vast majority of you um, cognitively believe in God. But you know, we've, we've, had, we've had people come who weren't sure. And you know, I'm glad. If, you're, if that's you and you're here, I'm thankful you're here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll, I hope you'll come back and hear more of what the Bible, God's revelation to us, says about God. I hope you'll pick it up and read it and, and ask him to prove himself to you. Uh, th- th- by the way, this word's powerful, okay? I mean, it, it penetrates hearts. It, it works through your mind, but it penetrates hearts. But this is God's self-disclosure, the, the word of God. So awesome you're here if you couldn't really put your hand up, okay, um, uh, in truth. But most of us would say, and probably have said for some time, that yeah, we believe in God. All right, well, what does it look like in any and every moment of our day to believe that God exists? And by that I mean not only to believe with our head, but with our hearts. Because how we actually live throughout our day, right, every hour of the day, how we actually live demonstrates what we really believe. Not necessarily what we claim to believe or even think we believe, but how we live actuates or demonstrates what's really inside the heart. So believing in God means that we regularly take time, despite a busy day ahead, to first spend time with Him in in His Word and in prayer. Uh, It's like food and, and even oxygen. It's like we, we need him in our lives. Believing in God means that we don't shy away from praying in public. And that doesn't mean we don't ever struggle with it, but that we're at a restaurant maybe with our family or maybe even alone and just bowing our head before the meal and giving him thanks knowing that other people are watching us. That's natural human behavior to not want to stick out uh, or to appear different. But if it's your habit, like Jesus did, and I hope it is, to, to pray and give God thanks before a meal, it means living the same in public and in, in private. Not pretentiously, but giving Him thanks and 
thinking more about what does God see and, and feel than, than other people in the room, right? Belief in God means acknowledging our faith in Christ before neighbors and, and colleagues at work, humbly and winsomely. Believing in God means living in integrity, knowing that during the times that others are not watching, God is always watching. Believing in God means living as though you believe that the Holy Spirit is actually part of your life, in your, in your life, that God himself, his spirit is, is with you. Believing in God means seeking to resist sin in the moment of temptation by quoting scripture and, and asking God for help. And by the way, I, I want to assure you, we are sinners, even those of us in Christ who are redeemed, we're going to fall because we do have a sinful nature, but it means quickly repenting of that sin because our deepest heart inclination is for Christ. And when we come to our senses, hopefully quickly, we just quickly repent and, 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 and we're grieved by it. But we, we look to the cross so we don't have to wallow in it. We, we recognize we are forgiven. And we, and we, we get up after falling and we, we fall forward, so to speak, right? We fail forward and we, we're like, we're learning, we're growing. Uh, Lord, help me never do that again. And I mean it, right? Uh, fake repentance may be some remorse, but, but still keeping that sin in the orbit of our life for when we feel like it again, okay? Uh, that's the difference. Believing in God means that we recognize all of our help in life comes from the Lord. So therefore, it's natural to pray throughout the day because we need him. We need his help. So, so what does it look like in truth when we live like we don't believe that God exists? What we might call functional atheism. Well, it's to be too busy for devotions, to choose not to lead our family in devotions. What we're, what we're really communicating when we don't uh, regularly do that is that the TV or entertainment is more important to us. Failing to acknowledge God publicly. You know, we've all been there probably where maybe we did a quick quick shotgun prayer kind of, we hope no one really notices. You know, maybe they think we're, you know, just kind of wiping our nose or something. Uh, I remember as a kid doing that, you know, my dad, to his credit, uh, prayed longer prayers at restaurants than at home. Okay, so you're kind of sitting there, sitting there squinting, you know, are they washing? Well, failing to acknowledge God publicly. Keeping our conversations about Jesus only within church circles. I, I would honestly, and I, I hope I'm not being condemnatory, but I, I hope this is something you could think about. Um, I hope this isn't true for anyone here. But if, like your neighbors and your colleagues and your friends, people that you regularly interact with like, over time, and who've known you for some time, don't know you're a Christian. Like if they really don't know that you're a Christian, okay, something's really wrong. So I just hope you'll hear that from me, take it from me, and said in love, not with a spirit of condemnation. But if, if you've worked with people for a long time or interacted regularly, you know, maybe been scuba diving with them for years, and they really don't know that you're a Christian, something's wrong. Something's just wrong, okay? Um, there's something you need to repent from here. You, you need a that a heart check is in order. You need to check yourself and ask, do I really believe in Christ? 
making no effort at all to pray for or share the gospel with folks who don't yet know him, okay? Like no burden at all, no burden at all. I'm not talking about perfectionism. All of us, all of us could be more brave, I know. Um, all of us could be more winsome. There have been times that I've been cowardly. There's been times that I have, I have um, been the opposite of that and thought, oh man, I should have been a little more gentle, you know? Um, but, but making no effort to pray for or share the gospel with the lost, I mean, you have to ask your, we've got to ask ourselves, do we really believe the gospel? Do, do we believe that the Bible, what the Bible says about God's holiness and judgment? And, and how can I love this person, care about him, and not share the gospel with him and believe the gospel at the same time? Those, those, those realities are not congruent. Compromising your integrity when no one is watching at work, maybe on your taxes, maybe on your phone. Excusing and minimizing sin in your heart as if God is not really offended by it, right? The, the functional atheist loves the phrase, no one is perfect. We, we need to remember that sin is unbelief in action. It really is. It's, the, it, it's, it refl- it's in the moment, there's no way I believe, I'm believing in that moment that God exists and that he's watching and that he's in, in my life, right? And that, that's why we need to quickly confess and repent and give no quarter to, to sin. Now there's plenty of other ways that we could consider that we might live as if God doesn't exist. Um, over-reliance on our safety nets. Nothing wrong with insurance. It's a blessing. Okay? Nothing wrong with a 401k or savings account. But if, if that's where our heart really lies in terms of our trust, instead of the Lord's provision, you know? If, the start, if we have a bad day on the stock market and it just ruins your day, man, that might be a heart check. Uh, where is my safety net. Is it in God's sovereign provision or is it in my own resources? Believing in God. We need to ask ourselves, do we? Do we? And then, you know what we need to say? Like the Father, commended by Mark, I believe. Help my unbelief. Give me more faith, Lord. Right? And remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Pick it up and read and ask for it. Well, the last and third element that I see here in verse 6 is the concept of seeking God. Seeking God. We see in the very end that God rewards those who seek Him. So what does it mean then to seek God? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, and it gives us some great examples. And the first example that, that my mind went to was David, right? Big time sinner. I mean, we would have locked him up, okay, for a long time if he lived in our society. Big time sinner, man after God's own heart. So if you know that you're a big time sinner, I hope the example of David encourages you. He repented, and he loved the Lord, and he sought after God. He wanted God in his life. So he wrote heartfeltly in Psalm 63.1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David knew that he needed the Lord. We read in verse 2 through 5, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. You know, he wasn't afraid to be considered a fool by people because of his, his exuberance in God. My soul will be satisfied as with fat. Think like, you know, T-bone steak when you hear that. And, and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You know, when he was struggling to sleep. David was a man who had a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of pressures on his life, right? So in the middle of the night, when he's thinking about stuff, where did his mind go? He goes to the Lord, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David sought after the Lord. Another psalm that we could go to would be Psalm 42. Now, this psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah. Spurgeon's theory that was that this was a psalm of David. He just saw David's heart all over it. And that it was written for the sons of Korah to sing. Maybe. But we see in this psalm that, that, that seeking God doesn't mean that emotionally you always feel close to God. Listen to these words. There's a desire for God here. But there's also acknowledgement that sometimes we're not always on top of the mountain emotionally. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Then you look at verse 3. and He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And in verse 5, we read, why are you cast down, O my soul? And and why are you in turmoil within me? You know, I hope this encourages you in the event that you are in a place right now where you believe, but maybe your emotions aren't there. And you want them to be there, and and you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling with depression. And, and the enemy would come in and say, how can you really be a Christian, have the Holy Spirit, you should have the joy of the Lord in you, and be depressed? What's wrong with you? Well, the truth is that there's, there's a lot going on out there. there. There can be things medically. There can be things chemically. Uh, one of the long effects for some people of COVID, frankly, is downcastness. And we just recognize that, okay? You, you may be like, hey, what's, something's wrong with me. I, can't, I don't know what's going on here. I can't sleep. Well, it might be medical. There could be that element. Doesn't mean that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is not strong enough to lift you and to heal you. He is. Um, sometimes people struggle with chemical imbalances um, or things that happen where they're hurt by other people, and, it, and it's a natural thing to struggle with sorrow. That the depressed Christian actually has a very acute and accurate understanding of the broken world that we live in. They understand that pleasure will not fix pain that comes from this broken world that's full of 
pain and, and disappointment and hurt. Much of our society seeks to, 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 to live off the rush of pleasure. The, the, the depressed Christian understands that the rush of pleasure is, 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 is no cure, no tonic, no, no real tonic. Okay? And so the answer we see here is to seek God with, with our heart, to, to put your hope in, in God. And that's what the psalmist says. Why are you in turmoil within me, soul? Oh, soul, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I, I appreciate Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers' words here, who struggled with depression. Who, who, he wept, wept for long periods of time, not knowing why. He called it the melancholy. But he writes, it is well to tell the Lord how we feel, and the plainer the confession, the better. David talks like a sick child to its mother, and we should learn to imitate him. So part of seeking the Lord is being honest with your heart and, and, and just going to him and saying, help, help me, help me feel, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So we can, there's all kinds of places, but the Psalms are great places to go to learn to seek God. But ultimately, I would say that we should look to Jesus to learn he modeled seeking God for us, right? He did that. I mean, we read in Mark 1, 35, that he would rise early in the morning. And he'd go out to a desolate place. There's a sense, I, th- I think, where he, was, he felt closer to God and God's creation. Bear in mind that Jesus was the creator, okay? We, we, we read that in, in John 1. Apart from him was nothing made that was made. Uh, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 talks about him maintaining the universe, all of creation by the word of his power, so actually sustaining the atomic structure of the, of the universe through his power. There's a sense in which Jesus would go out there into nature, and I think to places where, where the crowds were not, <laughs> to spend time with his Father in prayer. And man, there's so many places to go to look at Jesus' example. I mean, just the words of John 17, the high priestly prayer, that that intimate prayer with his father for us, his church, his disciples, before he went to the cross. One verse that comes to mind from John 17, just listen to the words for intimacy here. Jesus prays, I and them, he's talking about us and him, and you and me, him and God, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus sought after just like by the way we husbands should never take the love of our wives for granted we should constantly pursue them jesus constantly pursued and sought after the love of his father even though it was a perfect love i think of jesus is groaning to his father at gethsemane pouring out his heart struggling in his humanity at the mission that laid before him and the pain not only physically but spiritually, as, as our sins were to be put on him and he was to be separated from his father for the first time. As he looked forward to that and agonized, he sought God. He poured it out to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't been, prioritize time in the Word. Prioritize time in prayer. Prioritize, make some time, carve some time Try to create a bubble so that you can meditate. You know, meditation is an almost lost art. Um, listening 
and quieting our soul so that we can reflect on God, it is hard in a day of social media and YouTube where in every free second, what is our natural inclination? What do we do? Like robots, we grab these things and we start scrolling, right? We just get inundated by media. You got two minutes, you got 30 seconds, what do you do? So easy just to pick this thing up and to, to fill it with all kinds of stuff, right? Instead of meditating on the Lord. Don't let this device, which is a Pandora's box, right? It's a blessing. There's a lot of amazing things we can do with these things. There's a lot of amazing things for the kingdom we can do with these things. Um, prayer requests we can grab in real time with people across the world. I mean, you know, thinking about, you know, Mike and Libby setting off on a journey tomorrow morning, right? By boat, 2,000 nautical miles. Man, we can actually track them, you know, on these things. That's crazy. I got a link from Mike last night where I can actually track his journey, his little GPS signal thing, and pray for him. Okay, that, that is cool. There's a lot of neat things that we can do, but man, the wickedness and the distraction that can come from these things. So don't allow your phone to be a prayer killer in your life, right? Do what you got to do, you know? Maybe you need to drop it in like a tin can or something in another room and, and, and like just open your Bible and, and, and relearn what it means to quiet your soul and heart and meditate on God. Um, do what you need to do. Be radical about it so that you can seek him as Jesus did. Think of the song, the words, in the morning when I rise. Give me my iPhone. No, give me Jesus, right? When I'm alone, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, Oh, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. I, don't, I doubt any of us in our last gasps of air will be grabbing our iPhones and checking the scores or the stock market or the news, right? Or our social media feed. When I come to die, I hope not. What a waste. I, I hope not. When I come to die, give me, give me Jesus. You know, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, that we should seek first his kingdom, too. He's the prize first, above even his kingdom. He's the prize. But Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this means that, that if we truly seek the Lord, we're, we're going to seek after, we're going to be excited about his kingdom. I, I mentioned the analogy last week that Augustine gave us of the city of man versus the city of God, right? All of our political, social interests versus ultimately his kingdom. Not to say that we don't live in the city of man, we do. We have responsibilities here. We, Christians should be the very best citizens, okay? We should. We should vote. We should be involved. We should hold high the banner of Christ in our, in our culture, right? But ultimately, our heart affections has got to be for his kingdom, we should be thrilled when we hear about the Iranian church growing by leaps and bounds, right? We should be far more excited about our neighbor coming to know Jesus than agreeing with us about the COVID vaccine or whatever, right? Um, that, that, this is what should energize us, his kingdom. And that means that we need to be willing to have kingdom mindset, be willing to cross culture, 
Talk to people that maybe we're not so comfortable talking to because we want to see them come to know Jesus too. It means we should learn to love our enemies. Prioritizing service to his church and frankly to the world so that they may know him over self-gratification. I actually believe in and I like vacation. So I'm not saying, I, I have a comfortable mattress, right? I'm not saying comfort is evil. God's wired us that way. But if that gets in the way of serving him, we're willing to forego that so that we might make him known and serve his kingdom. So as we land the plane here, what way, what ways do you think, and this is a question you could maybe talk around the table about, in what ways might our lives today be like Enoch's? Right? I, I think Jesus is coming back soon. I think we're living towards the end of human history in this age as we know it, and I think there's a glorious future. Okay? There's a glorious future of human history that's coming after Jesus comes back. But we're, I think, now, hey, my day is as a thousand years to him, so he may have a different plan, but man, I see the signs pointing to his return. And I'll tell you what they are, what I see happening, is the gospel penetrating every people group, right? They're almost all reached. That gives me great hope that Jesus is coming back soon. Well, Enoch lived at the very beginning of human history, early, right? Well, relatively speaking, there were a lot of years that those seven generations lived, right? But he was way before the flood a long time ago. So the question you can talk about is, in what ways might our lives be like Enoch's? And in what ways aren't they? Well, um, we're not going to live, I don't think, as long as Enoch. But we too can walk with God by faith. Walking with God brings great significance to our lives. When I, when I thought about this, I thought, Lord, teach us to number our days. Such, such, such that we might not waste one of them. I don't want to waste a day of my life living for lesser things than the Lord, right? Don't, don't let a day go by in which you don't walk with God. If so, that's a wasted day. You know, I, I, I was at the Billy Graham Museum. I don't know if any of you have been there. Um, years ago, I was in Charlotte, and I had a few hours before I had to get to the airport. And very close to the airport in Charlotte is this big barn and it's the Billy Graham Museum, and it's actually really cool. I mean, it's really, really something. And I remember walking through the Billy Graham's Museum, and, and, you know, there's all kinds of artifacts and stories and news articles, and just the kind of story of his life, which is a faithful life. And, and towards the end, Billy Graham's, uh, uh, you know, in his later years, uh, he's retired from ministry, he's living in his cabin, spending many, many hours in prayer, and he was interviewed, I can't remember if it was ABC or who it was, it was CNN, or it wasn't CNN, it was ABC or one of the, the three networks, and, and an old man, and he's being interviewed by someone who I assume is not a believer, and, and so she asks him if, if he would do anything different, and he said yes. He says, I, I traveled too much. I, I wish I had done fewer crusades and traveled less so I could have spent more time in prayer. Think about that for a minute. I, 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 I thought, are you kidding me? I'm kind of a doer, kind of a project guy, right? I thought, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad you've preached every one of those crusades because God saved hundreds of thousands of people through your ministry. Well, here's the deal. Billy Graham, 
as he's spending the, the, the last years of his life dedicated and devoted to prayer and intimacy and seeking God, walking with God in his rocking chair, he, he's wishing he had done more of that earlier. And you know what? He understood the source of power. It didn't come from his own prowess, his own power of preaching. It came from Holy Spirit power. It came from abiding in Christ, God working through him. So you know what? You too can walk with God by faith. Well, you might think, well, one thing is for sure. We are not like Enoch in that we're all going to die. We're not going to go up in chariots of fire. Okay, death awaits us. For, for whom does the bell toll? Right? Well, hold on a minute. What if Jesus comes back in your lifetime? What if he comes back? If that, if that happens, and it could happen in our lifetime, we who are in Christ are not going to die. We're going to be transformed. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So here's the question. What if Jesus came back today, like in an hour from now? Would you be ready? Are you ready? Would that be a beautiful experience for you? Are you walking with him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example you've given us of Enoch in the Old Testament, back towards the very beginning of Genesis. Lord, thank you that even back then, even in a wicked time, you had relationships with people. You revealed yourself to this man, and he walked with you, and he loved you, and he was intimate with you. Lord, we thank you that we have access to that kind of a relationship through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know him yet, that today would be the day of their salvation, the day in which your spirit would move into their heart, that, 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 that they would know you, that, that Jesus Christ would come in and dine with them. That they would learn to walk with you. And Lord, if there's a brother or sister in this room whose heart has grown cold, who has become lukewarm in their faith, I pray that today they would repent, look to Jesus, Lord, and that, that you would renew and revitalize that faith, that they would seek you. Lord, they would, they would walk with you again. I pray this in, in, in Christ's name. Amen.